Welcome to another episode of The Real Dirt with Chip Baker. On today's dirt, I have Joe Ori. He's founder of a cultivation facility in Michigan, Six Labs. Hey, Joe, how's it going? Hi, Chip. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. You're currently speaking to me in my new podcast studio. We're under construction. So listeners, uh, forgive the, the, the poor sound quality. We're fixing to turn this back into a awesome state-of-the-art podcast facility to bring all of great people like Joe and others to you. If you haven't listened to any other Real Dirts, if this is your first one, please go to iTunes and Spotify and subscribe the Real Dirt Podcast. Man, I was really excited when uh, you contacted us about chatting because you know you're you're an entrepreneur my favorite subject is business no matter if we're talking sugarcane or pecans or ganja my favorite subject you're in one of the hottest states right now michigan can you tell me a little bit about what's going on in michigan sure well i don't know you know trip how much background you know you or your audience knows about it but you know when we say that, you know, we call our investors that, you know, Michigan is a new market. They all kind of do their own research and say, well, it's not really new. Um, they did have a medical program, you know, back in 2008, 2009, that was wrought with problems. It basically became a legalized black market, if you will. And so back around 2016, 2017, the state you know, looked at what they had and said, we've, we've got to revamp this thing. And they rewrote the laws and modernized them, if you will. I mean, it's kind of crazy to call anything in the cannabis world modernizing because it's all relatively new. But they rewrote the laws and opened it up to real businesses coming in. And so, uh, you know, when you said I'm a, I'm a founder, I'm a co-founder, uh, we, I have five partners. And uh, we saw an incredible opportunity to come in and, and have a substantial footprint in the state of Michigan. So, so it's a relatively new market when you look at it in perspective. I mean, we have a substantial lack of supply of, of pretty much every product. Very recently, the caregivers who were the, you know, who were the effectively the market back in 2008, 2009, and up until 2016, 2017, were recently, you know, taken offline relative to certain products and their ability to sell to dispensaries. So now there is an incredible lack of supply and, you know, the prices are extremely, extremely high at the cultivation level. And, you know, they're anticipated to be that way for a while. And, and obviously the coronavirus didn't help some of the newly minted companies, meaning ones that came online before us or were planning to come online because, you know, construction stopped and everybody's kind of halted. So Michigan's going to have a pretty solid market for a few years. And then we'll see which, what happens. You know, we're trying to, you know, force the state to avoid the problems that Oregon ran into and, you know, and Colorado with an oversupply of, of, of growers. And, and I think I know a little bit about you. I think you guys are in Oklahoma and, and I'm very well aware of what you guys got going on there. I have a very good friend of mine who's just started a company in Oklahoma and, and you guys got thousands and thousands or whatever, six, 7,000 licensed growers and, and all different sizes. I know that, but you know, that's kind of the thing. Every state's different. You don't know what you're getting. It's like uh, you know, it's like a, a box of chocolates. When you, oh yeah. Michigan's, know. Michigan's hot for a bunch of reasons. One, it has a historic cannabis presence. Historically, people have grown and consumed vast amounts of cannabis in Michigan. Right. <laughs> yeah. Growers and, you know, there's growers and underground networks and in states like that, they blossom a little bit differently than states that don't have a cultural connection to, uh, you know, cannabis. 
you know, Ann Arbor and Detroit were huge hub spots for cannabis and, you know, hashish for 50 years. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, there's no there's no shortage of people who are, you know, are using and have been using for years and are, you know, fans of, of, the, of the product. Obviously, strangely enough, there's quite a few municipalities that still haven't opted in. I mean, when you look at the map in Michigan and you start to pinpoint where you might open some retail stores, you know, you're really kind of limited in the sense that I think last checked and don't quote me, but it's, I'm pretty close. I'm sure like, I think there's only about 138 municipalities that have opted in to actually have retail stores. So, you know, that and cities or counties, those are, those are, those would be cities, municipalities. And, and the crazy thing is Detroit itself, Detroit, Detroit proper still hasn't opted in for recreational cannabis. So you're talking about a monstrous opportunity once that does happen. And, you know, people are trying to forecast where it's going to be in the next place that's going to open. And, you know, there's a lot of lobbying efforts being, you know, going on. But when you get up in northern Michigan, yes, I do agree with you that there's an incredible base of people that are fans and, and supportive of, of the plant, uh, you know, hopefully going to force the rest of the hand of the state to jump online. But it hasn't been as easy as you might think. Oh, no, weed's not easy, man. It's hard. It is absolutely hard. And, it, and you know, where it used to be maybe a little easier the commercialization of it is definitely difficult it's the craziest part of this business i mean you know we we came in and we said okay you know how you know we're we're, we're what we call early late adapters right we didn't come in in 2008 we don't have a company that started in colorado or california but we said let's let's identify you know what's wrong with the industry let's let's identify problems let's solve problems so once we came together and the group came together rather organically, you know, we had, you know, we didn't pick and, and, and parcel. We just were a group of guys who knew each other through friendship or business. And we, we ended up having, you know, an attorney, my, myself, you know, we had an accountant, we had a financier, we had, you know, a restaurateur who's, you know, master of logistics. And we actually had a builder who oversaw the entire project. And those were the partners that came together. And we had, you know, a younger partner, who, you know, is really, really, you know, passionate and embedded in the cannabis world. So it, it, those six partners, hence the name Six Labs, we came together and some people don't understand the product. Some people, you know, are, are really talented in business. And then other people are passionate and know the product, but, you know, but don't know, you know, how to sell it. So, you know, you, you have a, we're, we're basically gelling those, those processes together to, to make, a, you know, what I believe to be, you know, the next generation cannabis company, because everything that we do from the minute that we started our project has been geared towards solving problems. So we researched and we traveled throughout the country before we even met with a designer for our facility. And we said, okay, we like these things. These things seem to work. Is there anything better in the industry right now? Then we found all these other things that don't work. And we went out and tried to solve those. So when we created our facility, you know, we got some people in the state who were looking at us saying, you guys are never going to make it. You spent too much money. Um, you know, we could have built our facility for probably $6 million and we would have had a great facility. We went out organically, raised money with former business associates, friends, family, and, you know, we built a $10 million-plus facility that we basically said this, Chip, if the federal government gets involved in this in the next few years and the FDA starts to place regulations, we said this. We don't know what those regulations are going to be, okay? We don't. But we said this. If we're not passing 
after those regulations than no one else is. <laughs> and that's that, that's the only thing we could we could do to say that we were going to definitely make this next step whenever that comes. But yes, right now, you know, there are a multitude of problems. I mean, you, you can talk about, you know, the, the ones that we have focused on, which is, you know, confusion and intimidation in the market, you know, product quality, lack of consistency, you know, perception, um, you know, the fact that there's no brands, you know, I mean, there's no national brands. And then, you know, what you have now is some of these companies that are in other states because they can't get licensed and it's too much money to do it. They're just buying labels in other states, but it doesn't mean that it's that cannabis. So, you know, one of the other things, you know, one of the other things we wanted to do is be transparent. You know, we, we, we want, you don't necessarily know where you're getting your cannabis from, especially because it's got some label on it from a company in California. And, you know, now they're saying, well, we're growing the same, the same cannabis here. And we wanted to basically give our consumers a seed to sale transparency where they know everything about it as much information as you possibly can give them and educate them so that, you know, they can make the best decisions, you know, for their medical or their recreational needs. So, but, you know, it, it's an evolving market. It's super exciting. It's, it's, that's the best part about it is that, you know, it's, it, it's so, it's so young and no one really knows where it's going that, you know, you really, uh, there's no right or wrong answer. Yeah. It's all just started. Yeah. You know, Joe, interesting, you know, uh, listening to your story, I realized you're a hybrid Cannabis entrepreneur. Almost all the cannabis entrepreneurs fall in about in three different kind of areas. They're the growers or weed dealers that have been doing this forever. And so it's natural progression, mm-hmm. right? They're the investors, whether it's family office, venture capitalists that get approached by a grower, i.e. one of these growers or drug dealers to fund their operation. And then there is the like brother-in-law and family friend that get together while they're smoking a joint on the back porch and say, oh man, I think we can do this. We could throw our money together. And the reason you're a hybrid is because most of the like uh, uh, brother-in-law investment type packages start off real small and they don't have this bigger picture you know, solving problems, this experience in business. It's often their first business. They may be successful as dentists or attorneys or real estate or something other like other, but haven't had a vast entrepreneurial industry. And and, and you're a hybrid of the, the VC investment plan, but the brother-in-law family investor type of investment package. I think that's probably a fair assessment, you know, and, and I have my own personal journey, you know, with cannabis. I mean, I, I played sports my whole life and, you know, and I knew early on that I wasn't going to go to college unless, you know, somebody gave me money to go. So I worked really hard in school and played football and I, I went to college and, you know, injured myself very severely my freshman year and had my very first back surgery when I was 18 years old. And this, I'm, I'm aging myself, Chip, you know, I, uh, this is back in 1988, and, you know, I had my first back surgery. I got surgery, and I felt great afterward, went right back to playing football. And I ended up re-injuring myself the following year, and then the year after that, having a second surgery. And now this is 1990. I'm in New York City in college, and I go into Columbia University, and, and I'm in chronic pain. So what are these doctors doing? Well, this is the beginning of the opiate period, right? No, so you need the chronic 
You need the crumbs. Well, right, right. So, they're, <laughs> so, you know, so they're feeding me opiates like they're going out of style, and I'm really not feeling well. On so I personally just stopped taking them, but I'm in chronic pain. And, you know, as I, you know, I hate to, to say this about the Ivy League, but, you know, cannabis was available to me back in the 90s. And, and I started, uh, you know, experimenting with it and noticing that I was getting certain levels of pain relief that I said, you know, this is better than anything I've taken. And alcohol, you know, only made your symptoms worse the next day because you were dehydrated and you felt like shit. So I, you know, I, I had my personal journey. And then as I grew, I have... You know, I've looked at the NFL, I've looked at these sports leagues. I've got tons of friends who are former NFL players, and I have friends who work for the NFL, and I, I, I battled them all the time. I said, how could you guys be, especially after everything got exposed, yeah, how yeah, could man. you guys be suspending these players for testing positive for cannabis, but yet the back door, the back room, the athletic room, you guys are pounding opioids down these guys' throats. They're all ruining their careers. Their lives are going under, and yet the hypocrisy continues. So I had a personal pursuit when I when when cannabis went medically viable. I said, you know, this is this is I want to get into this. I want to change the way the world perceives this because it's not what you know. You know, I'm 50. I was raised by immigrant parents. They told me everything was dope, right? Yeah, everything was yeah, bad. Right. My, yeah, yeah, and, my you know, too. and so you grow up, and you're like, you know, so you grow up in this in this mentality where everybody who smokes cannabis or you know does anything, you're all put in together. Heroin users and cannabis users in my my family were, you know, were blocked the same, right? Yeah. So I, I I had a personal I had a personal pursuit about this, and you know, so it's not just you know smoking a joint in the back room, but we we did definitely look at it and say, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right and the only way to do it right at this stage in the game how do we become different is to solve problems that are out there so that's what, so what we're pursuing was, I mean, i'm real interested in that because uh, uh, that's you know one of my business philosophies is, is 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 answer questions solve problems how did you identify the initial problem and what were some of the first ones that you that you realized that you want to share with us in doing our r&d we did exhaustive r&d everyone in the company was 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 given a, a specific, you know, uh, task to figure out. And, you know, that went from the actual cannabis products that were out there and, you know, from labeling and how many were out there, what the users were feeling, how the medical patients were responding to certain, you know, going to a dispensary, what their experiences were, all the way to the facility and what kind of equipment you were using and what kind of, you know, logistics you had in place. So we said, you know, we came up with, you know, a list and the list started with like, you know, like I said, the product, you know, confusion and intimidation. I mean, so many products out there and you're relying on a bud tender, right? And some of these bud tenders are awesome and, I, and I've experienced them. But and yeah, most, know, most are just Burger King weight. So. Correct. And, they, <laughs> and so, so when you look at it like this, you're saying, okay, most of the states are medical, right, Chip? And then, you know, some, what a 11 or 12 are online as rec. But back then it was all medical. So you're saying to yourself, okay, so not only are you not getting a doctor's script, but you're actually going to the pharmacy and you're not getting a pharmacist tell you what you should take. You're getting a bud tender. So we saw that that's a problem inherent in the industry and we're aiming to solve that problem. We can't, we can't require a curriculum for a bud tender just yet. But what we're going to do is we're going to put everything on our label. We're going to let everybody know what goes into it. We're going to try as best we can with the limited research and science that we have available to us to pinpoint what, you know, these particular products are expected to do for you. 
We're going to try to control the dosage and, and control, give a control, you know, product quality control, which leads into that issue. I mean, when you look at these states, Chip, and you see how different so many of the testing regulations are. Oh, yeah, you know, man. You, you know, and you look at it. Come on. I mean, and you're looking at it and you're saying, okay, these are mostly put in by lobbyists. And, you know, cannabis, these acceptable levels of toxicity should not be being decided by lobbyists. They should be being decided by, by science. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, in Oklahoma, the pesticide levels just changed. The acceptable levels, you know, increased, went from 0.5 to 0.25. So that's a perfect example. So it's been, it's been 0.5 for all that time. Now it's 0.25. And, you know, what level is acceptable? And then you start to think this crazy thing, which is, you know, especially for people who've been using cannabis for a long time, well before legalization, is, you know, you look and you see how challenging it is to get your cannabis in a controlled environment with experts and, and all the greatest equipment money can buy to be as clean as it possibly can. And you still see levels of infiltrates that you're just like, how in the hell did this happen, right? Well, think about what's in the black market products, you know? And when you start to think about what's in the products where people really have no concern or care, there's no testing, you start to say to yourself, you know, what have I been ingesting for all these years? What is the cannabis user who still goes down the street to buy illegal cannabis or God forbid, buy an illegal vape cartridge, what are they getting? So we're trying to get yeah, the message totally out unregulated. there. Totally yeah. unregulated, man. Yeah. I've seen people use RAID for spider mites and also the worst contaminants, you know, mold, mildew, smoke, diesel fuel. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, that's, I never heard that one, Chip. I, I got to be honest with you. That's, that's right. I've heard all kinds of stories, man. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so, and, and they're real. So, you know, and, it, and then, you know, obviously you got lack of consistency. You want to go into the store and if you have, and you, you are lucky enough to be in a state that has legalization, you know, and you have a consistent provider through, you know, from seed to sale that you trust, you know, you could go in there one day though. And, you know, when you start getting into edibles and you start getting into the levels of THC and what's actually, you know, you're being provided, you want to know and rely on it. You know, in, in the sense of saying, you know, if I go to the pharmacy and I get Tylenol, I know what I expect from Tylenol. It's going to give me the same reaction every single time. Well, we need to get to that place. There needs to be that kind of consistency. So, you know, we think that with, you know, all of these variables that are in place, we're, we're trying to do our own in-house, you know, R&D and trying to test and research what other entities and what other countries, for that matter, you know, have, have done. And, you know, we're, we're looking at it this way, Chip. I don't know what your feeling is about this, and I'd be interested to hear it because I, I know you're in the business. I know you're a really bright guy. You know, it, it's like the United States allowing all these other markets in other countries to take off. And, you know, it's great that they've allowed the states to do this and bypass federal regulation. But really what we've allowed to happen is we've allowed other countries to get behind the science first, and they're way further along in getting to products that will actually be consistent and solve these so many of these issues that I brought to the table today. And I think that we are losing out 
And, you know, I don't know what the trade agreements are going to be once this all becomes legalized and whether they're going to open up the floodgates to California and whatever they got going down in Mexico and other countries. But there's going to be drastic competition. I mean, if you don't agree with this, you know, I, I think cannabis is eventually going to be an ingredient rather than a product. I think it's going to be. No, it already, it, it's already started. Hemp industry already already started out for sure. It's an interesting question, man. Interesting. You know, one of the many things that makes America great is pretty much anybody can come here and in a brief period of time, overnight in some states and cities, and sometimes a week or 10 days or maybe 30 days, you can set up any business in the United States, no matter if you live here, if you're a resident here. If you own property here, all you have to do is have a passport and uh, some corporate documents, and anybody can open up a business here. So, you know, places like former Soviet Union, Russia, uh, Israel, Amsterdam, you know, England, all of these places have had these university-sponsored researches for, for a long time. I know. You know, GW Pharmaceuticals, they've been working out of Great Britain for 25, 30 years now. And, and, and the, the man, the, the stuff coming out of Israel and technology and gene development. And it's incredible. It, it's just incredible. And all those people are just going to come to the U.S. and do business. And that's what's happened with GW Pharmaceuticals is they just opened up patents in the U.S. You yep. know, or attempted to. So, uh, yeah, we're absolutely behind on the research and the opportunity for a lot of American people. But the other opportunity is just, you know, this influx of new technology and ideas and, and coming, coming from the international, you know, research place or marketplace. Yeah. I mean, listen, that's something that nobody talks about enough and I'm glad you touched on it because not only is the United States passing up on the opportunity, you know, for this this commodity, but they're actually ignoring, you know, the potential massive manufacturing opportunity that this product presents. And and the type of, of quality engineering that the United States could provide if in fact this was, you know, accepted nationally and you know, we were able to look at this as a completely separate industry of technology. You know, I mean, you're talking about the possibility of creating completely new advanced machinery, advanced testing machines, all kinds of different products that would that would stimulate our economy in, in, in a significant enough way to matter. You know, I look at all the lost opportunity and I and I and I say where you know, it's almost amazing to just be in something where you're literally like, okay, where is this going to be in 10 years? And I'm going to be in it, you know, and that's, that's the other thing too, is you, I've had enough experience as an entrepreneur to know, listen, this isn't going to be, you know, we didn't, we didn't get into this to pump and dump. You know, we, we got into this to, you know, do it the right way. Seven to 10 years is usually the amount of time that it takes to get this business to where we want it to be, to whether we actually say, okay, are we, are we, do we have a strong footprint in it or is it time to potentially exit? But so we're, we're in it. We're not, we have no plans of going anywhere. We're going to grow the company. We have a lot, you know, one of the, that's all my partners all the time. One of the beautiful things about being in our forties when we started this is that, you know, we know a lot of people and we have a lot of contacts with business and it was relatively, I hate to say this, it was relatively easy to raise. We raised, you know, close to 14 or $15 million all told in, in both equity and financing. And, 
you know, it was relatively easy. But the problem is, is that we all had to step away to a certain degree from our other careers and jump all in. And, mm-hmm. and all of us are all in now. And, you know, things have changed since that happened. We're, you know, now we're all kind of getting in our lanes and everybody is functioning like a company rather than, you know, uh, six guys who had a great idea and enough money to start it. So, you know, those, those types of changes can be, can be cathartic at times, you know, because we're, some of us are friends with each other and I see myself not talking to my friends that much, not because we have problems, but because, you know, we're, we're, we're working together now and, you know, socially you just don't want to go out with the same guy who you're dealing with on a regular basis every day about trying to get a company off the ground. So, um, yeah, I used to, my, my feelings used to get hurt over that. (laughs) <laughs> but then I realized that exact same thing. These people hear me all day long. They don't want to hear me later on. Yeah, well, you know, that's true. It's totally true. And my feelings have been hurt at times because a couple of my the guys in it, one particular is a very close friend of mine. And, you know, he and I really used to play golf together. We don't, first of all, we don't play golf anymore at all. But we don't, we don't, we don't really have our times together. And, you know, but I will say this, that, you know, uh, part of entrepreneurship, and, and I know we're going to touch on some of that stuff, is is that this particular venture was one that I, I, I had the most confidence in I've ever done for one reason and one reason only is that, you know, you're, the, the partners that you choose, you know, sometimes they're not the right people for one reason is that they don't have the same will. They don't have the same no yeah, fail. Right. I, you're right. Right. I'll, I won't, I will not, you know, the ability to pivot, the ability to take care of a problem. And when you say I've got it covered, you don't have to worry about it. That that guy's got it covered. And my partners are incredible. You know, I can't say enough about them. They are salt of the earth guys who have an immense amount of success in other industries. And they literally dropped everything. And now they're, they're, they're submerged in this. And they are just the type of guys who you never have to worry are going to get done what they say they're going to get done. And that in and of itself, you know, it, that could probably, turn oh, even half, you know, yeah, that could turn a halfway good idea into something big. And we have what I believe to be much more than a halfway good idea. Did everybody have a, a previous background of your six partners? Um, I'm going to be honest with you. Three of the six did and three of the six he had really no opinion one way or the other, but have been, to be honest with you, those are the three guys who had no previous experience chip. They're more over the top about their passion for it now than, than probably the, yeah. the other three. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. They're new to it. It's all new and exciting. It's such an exciting plant and business. Correct. There's so many opportunities in it. And, you know, you mentioned this at the beginning that we were, this is all just starting. It's all just fresh. And so many people think the cannabis industry is over, but man, it's, it's not. And you don't have to have $12 million. I know people in Michigan that have started on $12,000. Sure. $20,000 and are going to do good. But this was a, this a great, I'm not going to call it a corporate strategy, even though that's exactly what it is. It just that, you know, often has such bad connotations, but a really great strategy to, to come into the market strong and with a multi-year game plan, not just to get rich quick. If you think you're going to get rich quick in the weed industry, it's just not going to happen. My buddy Stacy, Stacy Johnson over there at Harvest House in Colorado. I don't know if you're ever up in Colorado. You should really go check his place out, Crested Butte and uh, <laughs> in Crescent okay. and in and in Netherland, Harvest House is all boutique quality cannabis. But uh, he's got a great phrase that's getting rich quick since 1989. 
<laughs> that is, well, if he started in 1989, then it's a sort of an oxymoron because it's really he's not getting rich quick, but he probably has oh. made a couple of shekels. You know, <laughs> it, 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 it's funny. You know, I made this statement not so long ago, so I don't remember who, but it might have been on a podcast or might have been to one of our one of our investors, and I said we aim to be the largest craft grow company in the United States because we want to we want to maintain that same boutique type of mentality and the boutique approach to the quality. But we also recognize that, you know, in order to, in order to grow, you have to expand. So, you know, rather than have a hundred thousand, 200,000 square foot grow and just make what we deem to be Walmart weed, we, and I hate to call it weed, but you know what I'm saying? It doesn't sound great calling it Walmart cannabis. No, uh, no. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a, such a good term for it. <laughs> so, yeah, so we, yeah. So we want to, we want to create a craft boutique environment. And frankly, we want our, we want our, consumer brand to be a lifestyle brand. We, we want to try and, and branding is so difficult because of the fact that you're so limited on your commercialization of it. You're, you can't do it outside your state. There's no national brands now. So, you know, trying to put your footprint in the ground, you know, in your state is hard enough. And then when you start to say, okay, once the floodgates are open and this is allowed for interstate commerce, because that looks like it might be happening out West. I don't know if you've been reading, but, you know, oh, yeah, I've got the some, last couple I got, Oh, man, got some great friends involved with that. Justin Jones over there, he's involved with it in Oregon, and we'll see what happened there first. Yeah, so, I mean, one way or another, you know, I was telling my partners the other day, I said, you know, we, we applied for our recreational craft grow license in Illinois, which is an incredibly difficult uh, oh, yeah, license, license to obtain. We're actually going to find out. Oh, yeah. okay. oh, and I told I'm, my partners, I, I said, could we? I've seen of those so far. Oh yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. You got, you got, you got, you got to, yeah, you got to deal with losing, you know, failing the test, and and it's tough for me because you know I, I I'm somewhat of an academic, and you know I've taken a lot of tests in my life, and you know, and as a trial attorney in my background, I don't like to fail. When you know you do all the things you can do, and it's costly, man. I'll tell you, it's the the barriers to entry are are incredible. I mean, it you know you can spend. You know, hundred, two hundred, three hundred. I've got friends who spent four hundred thousand dollars on their craft grow license in Illinois. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. You know, and so you know, you you look at a guy who says, "Hey, man, I've got you know, I've got six thousand bucks for the filing fee, or twenty five hundred, I guess, for the social equity it was this time. I've got twenty five hundred dollars for <laughs> for my uh, for my license application. But who's going to do it? How am I going to do it? Where am I going to get the information? Yeah. Where are the SOPs come from? And, and you've got you know months and months of work with twenty people, and oh, yeah, you know just yeah. to compete. So you know, but I told my partners, I said if the interstate commerce pack that you know flies up in uh, you know in Oregon and California, then I wonder if we can take a boat from you know from from Chicago's Navy Pier across the lake in Michigan so that we can transport you know product back and forth because we're not contiguous with Michigan. That's the funny thing about Illinois is that you got to go through Indiana to get to Michigan. And uh, Indiana right. will hell will freeze over before before Indiana becomes becomes uh, legal. That's what they said about Georgia, but I'm applying for a license down there right now. So, yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah. that's a good point, Chip. That's a good point. And, and Oklahoma used to be the worst place in the country to get caught, and now I, know. Like, I mean, oh man, Oklahoma's changing fast. They have got it's really kind of got a bad rap because the way the country perceives it from the outside, but the inner workings of it, and it's got a, 
it has all the makings for a progressive state, man. That, That's uh, really the, cool. The the social stuff that goes on here, the like, you know, the multiple ethnicities that are here. I mean, you know, the LBGT community to here, like it, it's just you would not expect all of that. Well, you got a lot of big college towns too. I mean, people fail to realize that, and those college towns really do help. I mean. You know, oh, yeah. as far as, Absolutely. as far as, you know, I think that that's the, you know, that's, that's a big, that's a big factor. I mean, you guys got two major universities out there with, you know, a couple tens of thousands of students and, you know, those are, and then all the other universities in, 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 in you know, in the various cities and that, that really helps. I mean, I thought, you know, Oklahoma was underrated in the sense of where it might be someday. You know, and I, as I understand it, I mean, isn't it like most of the people who have, you know, they, they, everybody says, oh, Oklahoma's saturated with growers and blah, blah, blah. But aren't those a lot of small growers, you know? It's not, you guys don't have yeah. thousands of, you know, huge, you know, 50,000 square foot grow facilities. Am I correct in that? You know, you mentioned the, we, we call it the backpack laws, right, that they used to have in Michigan or California where almost anybody could have a small grow with just a little bit of investment or a letter from their doctor. Kind of the same things going on here in Oklahoma, but they just took they just took the veil off, right? Instead of saying, okay, it can be medical marijuana and we're not going to like regulate the growing and the selling of it, as most states have it, how they introduce it, right? They just sure. jumped right in. And that, that allowed... I mean, it's the exact same mechanism that happened in Michigan, Colorado, and gotcha. California. It just started a little differently, mm-hmm. you know. And, yeah, a bunch of out-of-state people have come here. I mean, I'm from out-of-state. You know, you can still invest here being out-of-state. The number of mm-hmm. people applying for licenses has slowed down. But, uh, yeah, man, they're going to have recreational cannabis here. Texas is right next door with 8 million people. I mean, yep. you know, this is really a great, great, great place to be for cannabis. Um, Don't you guys have something like 1,500 dispensaries already? Is that true? Man, for, I think it's, it's, it's even more than that. In the cities, the interesting thing about it here is in Tulsa, Norman, and Oklahoma City, there's building and planning departments. So, and that's also where the concentration of the dispensaries are. Gotcha. Um, so you see a lot of them that have signs, but they haven't been opened up because the city has just been so inundated with mm-hmm. building and zoning issues. And how are they taxing? Right. Taxation's great here. It's just taxed at the retail sale. And how high is that? I think it's 15%. That's great. Yeah, we're. I think Michigan, we're about 16%. You know, which yeah. then, you know, you look at Illinois and... You know, Illinois is going to, you know, Illinois is one of the first states, if not the only still, that, that passed legalization by, you know, by legislation rather than referendum. So it was great because the law is already written. They're going to have 500 maximum dispensaries. They're going to have X amount of grows. They've done the calculation. So, you know, in Illinois, you don't have to be, you're not going to have to be vertically integrated to survive, you know, whereas many other states, you always want that, you know, you always want your grow with a processing facility and five, six, maybe sure. 10 dispensaries. In Illinois, you know, you're not really going to need that because there's going to be a need for you no matter what because they've already calculated it and there's only so many licenses that are going to be that are going to be awarded. But, you know, on the flip side of that is the fact that, you know, like I said, the barriers to entry are, are ridiculous. The application process was ridiculous. And, you know, they came out with their dispensary awards last week that were supposed to come out in June, but because of the coronavirus, it got delayed. You know, there's lawsuits. 
alleging that, you know, that the applications were not read fairly. There was supposed to be a, sec a social equity component to it. So you got a lot of points for social equity. So almost everybody had social equity. And then they had an additional five points for adding a veteran. Well, what some companies did was went out and got a veteran. And here's the caveat. They had to be 51% owners of the company. So there were, it turns out there were over 4,000 applications for dispensaries in Illinois, over 4,000 applications for 75 licenses. But you could apply an unlimited amount of licenses, one entity, if you had the money. So 26 license applications, or, or applicants, I should say, tied for first place. But they had, they covered all 75 licenses because they applied for multiple licenses. It turns out that there were a bunch of other people who didn't have a veteran who also got a perfect score. So they sued because they basically said spirit of this application process was for social equity. It wasn't for veterans. It just got tagged on at the end and someone figured out, well, if I have a social equity who is a veteran, I'm going to get all 55 points. And so they, they filed the lawsuit in, uh, in, in, federal, in, in federal court. I'm sorry, I think it's actually in state court. And they filed an injunction. The state has holding off the lottery because they're basically going to take the 26 ties, put them into a hat, and all those 26 entities are going to get all 75 licenses. So point being, though, is you know, people look at it and say, you know, it's like playing lottery in Illinois. Because if you get this grow, I mean, people are talking about, the grow license, which is a craft grow, 15,000 square foot under canopy maximum. And they're saying those licenses alone are worth $10 million. So, God. You know, oh, yeah. my God. I got a 10,000 square foot California one that I feel like I've had $10 million in it. But <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, it did. Not really, but like I got to make the best of it. Thanks again for joining me with another fine episode of the Real Dirt Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear others, please download and subscribe to the Real Dirt Podcast on iTunes or Spotify. Please, 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 please subscribe. Check us out on Instagram and comment on some of our posts so we can move forward there. And uh, hey, man. Thanks for lending me your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, have an incredible rest of your day. This has been The Real Dirt.